Chapter One, Part Two of the Pioneer Work in Opening the Medical Profession to Women by Elizabeth Blackwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One, Part Two Early Life in England, eighteen twenty one. Emigration to the United States. The first eleven years of life had been passed under these happy influences of a healthy English home, when a great change of social surroundings took place by my father's emigration to the United States with his large and increasing family. Early Life in America In the month of August, 1832, the family party of eight children and seven adults sailed from Bristol in the merchant ship Cosmo, reaching New York in about seven weeks. The cholera was raging in England when we left. We found New York comparatively deserted from the same cause when we arrived, and several steerage passengers died during the voyage but the family party remained in good health, and the ocean life furnished delightful experiences to the younger travelers. The following six years were spent in New York and its suburb, Jersey City, across the bay. As daily pupil in an excellent school in New York, entering ardently into the anti-slavery struggle, attending meetings and societies, the years passed rapidly away. Our brothers, being younger than the three elder sisters, habits of unconscious independence among the sisters were formed, which became a matter of course. Often, in returning home from some evening meeting in New York, the hourly ferry boat would be missed, and we have crossed by the eleven or twelve o'clock boat with no sense of risk or experience of annoyance. We became acquainted with William Lloyd Garrison and other noble leaders in the long and arduous anti-slavery struggle. Garrison was a welcome guest in our home. He was very fond of children, and would delight them with long repetitions of Russian poetry. But fierce antagonisms were already aroused by this bitter struggle, and on one occasion the Reverend Samuel H. Cox, a well-known Presbyterian clergyman, and his family sought refuge at our country house. This gentleman had stated in the pulpit that the Lord Jesus belonged to a race with darker skins than ours. At once the rumor went abroad that Dr. Cox had called Jesus Christ a nigger, and it was resolved forthwith to lynch him. So he came out to our country house on Long Island, until the storm had blown over. Removal to Ohio, 1838 
when i was seventeen years old my father removed from new york with his family to cincinnati then a small but flourishing town on the ohio river where a promising opening for the extension of his business presented itself we left new york full of hope and eager anticipation we were delighted with the magnificent scenery of the mountains and rivers as we crossed pennsylvania by canal and stage for it was before the time of railways and sailed down the noble ohio river then lined with forests with eager enjoyment of new scenes the prosperous little western town was reached it was picturesquely situated on a plateau overlooking the river and surrounded by pleasant hills for a few months we enjoyed the strange incidents of early western civilization so different from the older society of the east amongst other curious experiences we attended a public fourth of july picnic held in the neighboring woods at this festival the well-known come-outers the waddles brothers were the chief speakers footnote a term then applied in the west to those who were dissatisfied with every phase of our social life they were generally noticeable for their long hair and peculiar mode of dressing. And footnote. Augustus, the elder, had established in the unsettled districts of the West what he called Humanity's Barn, where any human being might find a night's shelter. His younger brother, John, was a chief speaker on this special occasion, and he concluded his speech with the following to us astounding sentiment, which was loudly applauded by the large assembly present, viz. priests, lawyers, and doctors, the trinity of the devil. But all these curious experiences were suddenly checked by a catastrophe which compelled us to face the stern realities of life in the strange land to which we had just removed without friends or pecuniary resources. This was the sudden death of our earthly providence. The hot, oppressive summer of that western climate proved too much for the english constitution of our father within a few months of our arrival in cincinnati he died after a short illness from bilious fever leaving his widow and nine children entirely unprovided for this irreparable loss completely altered our lives recovering from the first effects of the stunning blow we began to realize our position and the heavy responsibilities henceforth devolving on us the three elder sisters set zealously to work and in time established a day and boarding school for young ladies 
whilst our eldest brother obtained a situation in the courthouse of Cincinnati under Major Gano. For the next few years, until the younger children grew up and were able gradually to share in the work, we managed to support the family and maintain a home. During this long struggle, our minds rapidly opened to new views of social and religious duty in the untrammeled social atmosphere of the West. The wider education of women was a subject then coming to the front, and we three sisters threw ourselves with ardor into the public conferences held in Cincinnati on this subject, actively supporting our staunch champion, Lawyer Johnston, who ably opposed the reactionary efforts of the Roman Catholic Archbishop Purcell in his endeavor to check the liberal tendencies of the age in relation to women's education. About this time we had joined the Episcopal Church, being confirmed by the venerable Bishop McGilvane of Ohio. We became members of St. Paul's Church, of which the Rev. H. V. Johns was rector, entering heartily into its social life and teaching in its Sunday school. We shared also in the stirring political contest which took place when General Harrison defeated Van Buren, the loco foco candidate for presidency. Footnote. The popular name for the Democratic as opposed to the Republican candidate. And footnote. We attended political conventions and public meetings and joined in singing political songs. It was a most exciting time. Some years later, the New England Transcendental Movement spread to the West. It was the era of the Brook Farm Experiment. We became acquainted with the very intelligent circle of New England society settled in Cincinnati, of which the Rev. W. H. Channing was the attractive center. This gentleman, nephew of Dr. Ellery Channing of Boston, and father of our present parliamentary representative of the Kettering Division of Northamptonshire, was afterwards well known in Liverpool and in London. He was a man of rare moral endowments and eloquence as a speaker. His social influence on a limited circle was remarkable. Men of thought and active intelligence gathered round him. Men from New England, who were then intellectual leaders of Cincinnati thought, such as James Perkins, C. P. Cranch, William Green, and Judge Walker, formed a society of which he was the inspiring center, a society which strongly attracted us. The Dial, and afterwards the Harbinger, with its anticipation of social reorganization, were then appearing, 
the writings of Cousin, Carlyle, and Fourier were keenly studied, and Emerson was revolutionizing American thought. I well remember the glowing face with which I found Mr. Channing reading a book just received. Sit down, he cried, and listen to this, and forthwith he poured forth extracts from Emerson's essays. Notwithstanding our close and arduous teaching occupations, we eagerly shared in this active awakening of thought that marked the time and joined the church of which Mr. Channing was minister. In the year 1842, our elder brothers entering into business, the boarding school was given up and I occupied myself with private pupils. Whilst still engaged in this way, I was invited to take charge of a girls' district school to be established in the town of Henderson, situated in the western part of Kentucky. The invitation seemed to promise useful remunerative work, so it was accepted. The region of Kentucky, where I then went, was a tobacco-growing district. I there gained my first practical experience of Negro slavery and the crude civilization of a western slave state. This being my first separation from the family, a constant correspondence was kept up with home. Some extracts from these letters will give a curious glimpse of Kentucky rural life fifty years ago. Henderson, March 5th, 1844. No doubt you've reproached me for my silence after promising to write the second day from my arrival, but we had a very long trip and it was not till the morning of the fourth day that I set my foot in the mud of Henderson. The chieftain left Cincinnati at two o'clock Wednesday morning, and in seven hours we made twenty miles. All seemed lazy on board the boat. The first night we laid up on account of the fog, the second we spent at Louisville, the third at Evansville. We had on board a quantity of green wood and stopped continually to take in fresh supplies. The captain, a fat, red-faced, good-natured fellow, went to sleep or took matters very easily. As we entered the canal at Louisville, he was standing on the hurricane deck at the head of the boat apparently fast asleep. The helmsman steered immediately for the rough stone wall of the canal, and with a tremendous shock smashed in a great deal of the woodwork in the fore part of the boat. The captain gave one jump, wrung his hands, spun round, and went to sleep again. In the morning, I went with Mr. S. into Louisville. There I got my watch-key mended, a providential piece of foresight, for it would have been impossible here. 
bought various little things, and saw also the famed Kentucky giant, and bade good-bye to Louisville, having been five hours passing through the canal. One afternoon Mr. S. was playing on his guitar on the side deck, when a great rough-looking boy made his appearance and addressed me, the ladies sent me to tell you to bring your man into the cabin that he may sing for them. I translated for the man's benefit, and a good hearty laugh we had. One of Mr. S.'s favorite amusements was to stand on the hurricane deck with me and joke about my village. Every two or three dirty-looking shanties that we passed, he would tell me to look out, for he had a presentiment that we were reaching Henderson. I grew almost nervous as we were approaching the situation, for really all the little towns we had passed looked so straggling, dingy, and uninteresting that it appeared to me almost impossible for a decent individual to inhabit them. You may imagine how I felt standing for the last time on a bright Saturday morning with my last friend and remaining piece of civilization awaiting my destiny. The clerk approached. Madam, we have reached Henderson. The boat turns... I give one glance, three dirty old frame buildings, a steep bank covered in mud, some negroes and dirty white people at the foot, and behold all that I could see of my future home. I looked resolutely down, exclaiming to my French friend, Lady Villain, horrible but the boat touched, and I was hurried off. Upon my inquiring for Dr. Wilson, a rough-looking man presented his arm, three negroes seized my trunks to tote them up, the steamboat shoved off, and I followed my companion, holding his hand to prevent myself slipping down the bank. In the middle of the mud, I stopped to see the last of our friend and civilization. We waved our handkerchiefs till the boat was out of sight, and then, gulping down my tears and giving a few convulsive laughs, we proceeded on our way through a dirty, little, straggling country village. We stopped before a small frame house, entered a low, shabbily-furnished room, where a poorly-dressed, sleepy-looking woman was introduced as Mrs. Wilson. I longed to be shown to my bedroom, for my head was in a perfect whirl, but I had to sit down and talk about what I know not what. At last I ventured to request permission to go upstairs. The daughter showed me up old, crooked, creaking steps and opened the bedroom door. How shall I describe it? A little window looking upon the side of a house not two yards from it 
the rough board walls daubed with old whitewash, the bed, the furniture, dirty, covered with litter and dust, all gloomy and wretched. My disposition to cry vanished at once. Tears froze far below zero. I smiled on my companion, who stood examining me, and asked to have my trunks carried up. This request brought my hostess, who, with some confusion, told me this was not to be my home, but that her niece was gone to make some preparations for my reception, and would take me there in the evening, she being perfectly aware that I could not live in such a hole. The word hole revived me. The inhabitants of Henderson were, then, not perfectly blind— they had some little consciousness that there were degrees of decency. There was a small ray of comfort in that little word whole. I descended, and soon found that everything proceeded with real Kentucky slowness. Begin to teach on Monday? This was utterly impossible. The idea seemed to them preposterous. The schoolhouse was hardly selected. The windows were broken. The floor and walls filthy. The plaster fallen off. The responsible trustees not appointed. The scholars unnotified of my arrival. No, twas impossible. I must wait a week." The idea of spending an unnecessary week in Henderson was insupportable. So I urged and argued and persuaded and ran about till a man was sent to mend the windows and another to clean the floor, and the responsibles came to visit me and promised to collect the scholars, and on Monday I was to begin." Then, to avoid the necessity of having to sit and repeat wearisome inanities, I set out, accompanied by the daughter, to view the so-called city. All looked dreary on a dull winter day. In fact, Henderson is a very small, very uninteresting country place, though it must be confessed the view of it from the river is the worst of all. Towards evening, I took a look at my schoolhouse. Nothing was done but mischief. The old negro had flooded the muddy floor with water and gone away, leaving the floor like the bed of the Nile. T'was now too late to get the place into order. The people are very pious. Nothing could be done Sunday— so, cursing the laziness of a slave society, I resigned myself to fate and followed my young hostess, a tall, graceful, sleepy-eyed girl, to my new quarters. A substantial rough-brick house opened its enormous gates to receive me. I entered a small, high-ceilinged bedroom, where I was to make one of four— and then my conductress glided away to bring her mother and two other sisters, 
the sight of the sisters somewhat consoled me because i immediately hoped to be able to teach for my board the mother received me with good nature and ever since i've been here the whole family have treated me with kindness to the extent of their knowledge one portion of which is never to leave me alone and i who so love a hermit life for a good part of the day find myself living in public and almost losing my identity well sunday and a refreshing presbyterian sermon of an eternity's duration i must leave to your imagination monday i ran about and at last seated myself in dr wilson's parlor where i received a visit from one of the responsibles a fussy pompous little doctor who talked grandly whereupon i talked grandlier upon which he told me this was an epoch in the history of henderson then in came the other responsibles when i spoke and they rejoined and the little doctor called to order and after a wonderful quantity of fuss the schoolhouse was pitched upon put into something like order and on tuesday morning i took my seat at the head of fourteen girls and organized my school End of chapter one part two